we know with you know automation of work and the way the workforce is changing and just life in general is changing, people need to like reinvent themselves more regularly. And that's not an easy thing to do. People never used to have to do that. People would be lifers in a company. I believe we need tools for that. As a society and business people and thought leaders or whatever we are, creatives, everything, our perspective should be fighting for human liberty and freedom. Hello and welcome to another bout of unboxing. Before we get started, I'd like to quickly introduce myself. I am your host, Harry, the founder and creative director at Unboxing Studio. Aside from producing this podcast, Unboxing Studio specializes in helping sports, fashion and lifestyle startups scale up by building unique, authentic brands that cut through the noise. On our unboxing podcast, I get under the skin of founders and innovators who are setting the example by questioning the status quo and building brands that will help shape a new and better future. If there's one thing that you do after listening to this podcast is please sign up to the unboxing mailing list via the link in the podcast description. It is totally free and you will receive every new episode direct to your inbox, free live workshops with podcast guests, access to Unboxing Uncensored, the secret bonus round from the podcast, and I'll make sure that I do not spam you at any time. But without any further ado, let's get on with the show. Today, my sparring partner is Brandon Good. Brandon is the founder of Houston, a new app that is initially based in Canada, which is where Brandon's from, that guides and introduces people to psychedelic microdosing for health and wellness purposes. Living in Toronto in Canada, where there are new laws around psychedelic usage for clinical and therapeutic purposes, Brandon's recent background is in the clinical research and application of these substances beyond sort of the other uses that we also know them for, which I'm sure we'll go into. Yeah. Yeah, So just today, really looking forward to learning a little bit more about what psychedelics are and how you can use them for therapeutic and clinical purposes. Um, and you know Brandon's experience with them, and also how they can actually be used to improve mental well-being, and also things like creativity and concentration. So, um, Brandon, um, it's great to have you in the ring. So, a connection goes a long way before unboxing, really, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, it's good to be in the ring. I've uh, kept track of the ring since its inception, and been waiting for my time to put on the gloves. <laughs> Exactly. It's been, that, it's been nice to follow and it's been nice to, to reconnect. That time has finally come. Yeah, it was um, it was nice to hear from you again, because um, obviously we met really briefly at university and you were quite an elusive, mysterious character who uh, I think you just came for one year and I was obviously yeah. there for three years. Yeah. And were you, you were based in a slightly different campus, I think. Yeah, I lived I lived in Durham, but I studied at I, I forget where exactly it was but it was like the the medicine campus that's right yeah um, uh, stockton, was it? Exact, stockton exactly yeah. exactly yeah so we we didn't really 
it was just uh, i will admit it was at the fashion show where we crossed paths yeah. which is just a guilty um thing we've got to get off our chest quickly it was but, good um, fun it was good it was fun. good it was good it was fun. a nice addition to my year in england yeah yeah exactly F- football and fashion you know football and fashion were the main two things yeah cricket a little bit of school yeah <laughs> with a little bit of uh, a few lectures thrown in um, yeah. no yeah we met really briefly there and um yeah we i wouldn't say we got to know each other very well but then sort of quite recently after starting unboxing i remember getting a message from you'd obviously seen some of the content and it, it kind of aligned with where you were at as well um and i think we then mm-hmm. had a really good conversation after that about what you were doing and we then sort of found a new friendship that we never really had when we were back at, at uni so that, that was really cool yeah yeah absolutely i um i guess it's part of covid forcing us inside and and to connect in new ways right i thought it was really yeah cool to see you voicing some like honest uh, opinions and and interests i think it was just on on facebook or something like that and i thought yeah you know, i would like to like reciprocate like I, I respect that and i would like to like reciprocate my my interest in that and give you a little shout out for uh transparency and like vulnerability in a way to sharing your opinions yeah, online appreciate that i think yeah as we as we both know, I, I don't know how kind of wrapped up in the durham culture that you got or the sort of russell group university culture but i think one of the big parts of this podcast is obviously it resonates more with people who've gone to those kind of universities where mm. expectations on your career are very high and mm. there's quite a lot of pressure it seems to financially be you know smashing it uh, quite early mm. on and i think pressure to or at least this is only my experience but pressure to the extent of you there's it's it's hard to sort of speak out against the path that you're on if you don't actually like it and it's not right for you because there's sort of this unquestioning like get into your job it'll be good work hard like we've we've sort of been programmed so much to just be sort of working hard and not complaining for so long that that actually just taking that moment to question and go maybe i'm not really sure about the path i'm on maybe i want to do something else is actually a very vulnerable thing to do um yeah. it certainly felt very vulnerable for me to do it um when i started on social media so no i really appreciate um someone sort of returning the favor if you like yeah for sure i've seen it like in the university sense and then also the football sense right like you get on a certain track when you're when you're younger and you start comparing yourself to other people and sometimes you don't even like question you know you don't take a step back to question is that the track you want to be on and then you can get seduced by you know kind of like short-term um like attractive measures of success that are defined on that track and kind of mm. perpetuate that mm. track um but you know hopefully before it's too late for all of us we can we can realize that um you know we can actually make choices you know yeah. Um, we don't have to just follow something and, and drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. So back when you were at Durham, I know you, football was a big part of what you were doing. Mm. You'd sort of come there on a scholarship. Was that right? And then, so how did you, were you still in the mindset of potentially wanting to become a professional footballer? or And how did that career path pan out? <laughs> the first yeah. layer of your onion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I started playing football quite young. Um 
and that that's so, that's soccer for you, but soccer, football to us, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've opted to only call it football from now on most of the time. But um, yeah, basically, I I played since I was quite young, um, and my dad was a really great athlete, and luckily some of that was was passed down to me. Um, you know, it's it's a fun thing. Um, you know, it can really turn into to an art form. There's like a lot of creative elements to it, and you know, it's fun. The competition lets you travel, all that. Yeah, and you know, you get a lot of um, let's say recognition for becoming that successful athlete and um you know traveling places moving places getting paid for it but yeah i guess deep down historically since i was a kid i was always more like intellectually curious uh, particularly around like the sciences the world psychology anthropology um, my first year of university was when i really got like formally turned on to philosophy um, so those were always like my, my very core interests. Um, you know, f- football allowed me to do a lot um, for sure, but there was just a time where I decided, you know, um, I would like to dedicate more of my time and more of my energy to these other interests that I find more um, like fundamental yeah. to who I am. So um, is that around the, the year you had in Durham where you figured that out and football was more just becoming a vocation and something you were good at just on the side. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I started to look more for other opportunities to um, kind of expand my experience and expertise in things I was curious about, like the scientific realm, philosophical realm, also in business as well. I did some things like informally through, through high school and, and earlier on. Um, so I just, yeah, I wanted to really just learn something new and properly dedicate time towards that i love how in our conversations we like really dissect when you spoke there about football and how it's an art form and there's lots of like creativity in it <laughs> i like that because like not many people would normally view a sport as, as as creative but actually you know it is very creative and also again running a business is often seen as mm-hmm this not very creative thing like it's just sort of Mm -hmm. i'm running a business and i'm making money and it's simple it's not like i'm being creative but i know we've talked a lot about creativity before and how everything you do is is creativity to some Mm -hmm. regard like it's anything that you're doing that's uniquely you or like authentically you and you're putting your spin on it that is a creative act and you are engaging with a canvas there yeah, especially so, when you're doing it like mindfully, I think, mm. um, like not just narrowly on that track. I know I stepped back from football for a bit. And then when I moved to Copenhagen, I got the opportunity just alongside my work to play some like semi-professional football at like, a, a pretty high level that, that fit in with my work. And it's funny, like the work that I had done just in general, personally and in my life, like, particularly mentally in between like kind of stopping football and then starting it back up again in Denmark, it definitely like added a lot of value to my football itself as to how like I approached it and, you know, the calmness I could have on the pitch and the new ways mm, I could see uh, playing. So it was interesting, like how stepping away actually like provided uh, some like improvements in other areas that I never really had previously. I'm curious to see how, uh, especially with like meditation and 
psychology and things like that catching on more in the sport world um, more broadly, like how those things will be applied. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love what you said there about how doing things mindfully makes it more of a creative act. And it's, yeah. it's interesting to, we've spoken also before about the relationship between con like being conscious of something and mm. yeah. the creativity involved in it. Like the more you can be aware that you are like of, of what's going on and what you're doing, mm. the more like creative you can be in the process of doing that. So I, I'm trying to think of like an example in football because yeah, it's an interesting one because football actually is, is a lot of great athletes actually kind of do things really well subconsciously. They're just mm. sort of programmed to be really good at what they do. I sort of think of, you know, Tiger Woods playing golf and how much of that is sort of subconscious creativity and fully like conscious creativity. Of, yeah. And I think it's sort of a, a bit of a combination. It's like when you have a level of skill that's so good that you can kind of rely on without thinking, exactly. it then allows you to then be conscious of more finer details and bring out even like more supreme levels of creativity, like maybe yeah. with Lionel Messi as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you don't have to think about the fundamentals anymore. Yeah. I think it, it's similar to like friends I have who have played piano or guitar for a long time, and then they can just they've mastered those fundamentals. So now they mm. can just riff. They can just riff, right? Um, it's kind of like jazz style. Um, and you know, my new football, as of like well, it's been a year and a half about now. Like I, I've always loved film, so I, I started getting into like acting as a creative exercise, and that's I've applied a lot of what I learned from football there it's like master the fundamentals mm. and then you can start playing around mm. with it and i found in football like especially just you know my own experience and then observing certain teammates who are more relaxed or more anxious you know if, if we're losing for example i mean you always play better when you're not dwelling on the last mistake yeah. you made yeah and you're not worried about like the next thing you're yeah. gonna do yeah. yeah you're just in that moment and i, I remember there's an analogy I always bring up where, or a story, I remember one of my teammates in university, he would get uh, a little bit anxious, especially when we're losing. Yeah. Um, you know, it'd be, let's say we're down by one or, or down by two or 20 minutes left. You know, that's more than enough time to, to come back. If you're playing with composure and you have the right, um, the right flow and momentum in the game. And so I remember this teammate, he would get quite nervous and, and sometimes get a little bit, argumentative uh, and you could just see it in his play so I would just kind of jog over to him because I was in the, in the center of the midfield and the balls that I just jog over to him when I saw him getting like that and just tell him like a really really stupid joke like to just get his just get his mind off like the seriousness of the situation mm. and it's like okay all we can do is play right now you know getting frustrated about it is going to be counterproductive so yeah I would just yeah. tell him some some stupid joke to take the edge off it and just not take it so seriously yeah that's really interesting like there is definitely something in that i think like from your example there with not getting bogged down in sort of the fear side of things mm. on say the football pitch i, I kind of liken it to my sport which is cricket and, and mm. batting and it's you don't often come out with your best shots and your creative shots when you've just started your innings you sort of that you have to build up a few 
mm. and hit a few shots first and then you start doing shots that you would have never sort of dreamed of doing in the start at the start mm. of your innings and it's like your base level of confidence and your sort of fear of getting out early has been fulfilled right so it then right. frees you up to just kind of express yourself and I think this is really interesting because it also relates to life in a way and Absolutely. being yeah. creative generally in life. And I think when you're still bogged down in the fear of let's call it making ends meet and mm-hmm. that's the, and it's, and that's like your main focus of, you know, when's the next, you know, meal going to be on the table. It's very difficult to be creative because yeah. that, that's not something that you can focus on. Um, have you, yeah. I think we've discussed before, like Maslow's hierarchy. I was, Have you, we're, yeah, yeah. we're totally on the same page. I was just about to bring that up. Yeah. yeah. yeah Where exactly. it's like you, it's, it's being creative and expressing yourself and sort of going to new heights of mm. performance. Mm-hmm. You have to see it as like building blocks, like a pyramid building blocks of like, yeah. you know, they talk about the All Blacks having the best fundamentals, like the best basics, which mm-hmm. then allows mm-hmm. them to be incredibly creative and it's 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 a universal thing that i think yeah no absolutely and i think uh, that's something that's interested me for a long time particularly you know when i went to university and started studying you know philosophy on the side of science because it's kind of a modern problem which i know we wanted to get into and you know i'm sure we'll discuss like as we become more prosperous and you know, it happens at societal levels and then it happens at individual levels as well, where, you know, we achieve a certain level of success mm. that was like our defining purpose. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then we've achieved that. We've achieved that security, those accolades, whatever. I know a big one for, for a lot of people, especially on the Instagram age is like being well-traveled and <laughs> stuff like that. Right. And then when you do all those things then you're like, Oh, what now? Like, you know, uh, yeah. like what, what next? And yeah. that becomes like, uh, you know, that moves the midlife crisis into the quarter life crisis phase. And yeah, they're getting earlier and earlier. Exactly. Exactly. And it's going to be 10 year olds. And so that's what I, um, that's what really interested me about like different realms of, of philosophy, um, particularly like existential work. And then when I found, psychedelics when i really like learned about psychedelics like three years ago um that fit like really nicely into this nexus of science and art and philosophy and religion and sociology um that i've been really fascinated by and i found that it provided like a new lens Mm. to look at those questions through Yeah, it's interesting because I was just going to carry you on from, you know, where you were with kind of leaving the football behind and moving on to your sort of career. And I wanted Mm. you to just reflect what you were just talking about there, like with your own journey. Mm. And I also know that we've spoken before about how there's one thing like studying philosophy and sort of reading Mm. philosophy books so that you can pass an exam. And there's Mm. another like, for me, what is real philosophy is actually sort of going through it yourself and like trying to apply that philosophy to your own life. I mean, I know I, I studied philosophy and ethics at school and it was just 
it was just kind of facts that I was reading, although I was kind of interested in it. But I think what makes it really interesting is when you can actually apply it to your own experiences and it starts to make more like experiential sense. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the next phase of your journey and sort of, you know, coming into a career and then and then finding your purpose when that sort of became futile. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this before I forget it, because I think it feeds in later on in the story. But I really found to your point about like thinking about philosophy versus like living philosophy. There's these interesting relationships, right, with like thinking versus feeling, so to speak, which seems to be like, uh, at least as far as we know right now, like a a bit of a dichotomy. Um, And I know psychedelics and acting actually are two things that really helped me better like apply philosophy and, and, and live philosophy in a more like living based sense and in a feeling based sense. Um, and that's why I'm really glad that I found uh, acting because it's almost like a, I you know I did some creative things in the past, like it was decent at, you know, artwork and I played saxophone for a few years and it was kind of, kind of musically inclined, but acting was the first thing that really applied, you know, my decade plus long interest in philosophy and, and psychology. It was kind of like a new door when I decided, you know, not to commit to football and to move into the, into the business world, I wanted to try out living in Scandinavia. And so I, I knew of this company, Nova Nordisk, which is a Danish pharmaceutical company. Yeah. So I joined them. I moved to Copenhagen, which is really interesting to actually like live in that type of society. And I just learned a lot about the way big business works, what's good about it, what's not, what I like about it, what I don't. Yeah, it just became kind of boring for me. It just didn't really fit my personality in terms of how constrictive it was. And, you know, things are, uh, this is, you know, read this in every single book about innovation and why big companies can't innovate. But it's just um, things are done the way they're done because they were done that way, Mm. right? And that's really uh, kind of against everything I stand for. I think a lot of, real passionate innovators struggle with big business just unless the company has an amazing policy on innovation it's just it just doesn't fit well with this with their psyche you know there just comes a time and and certain people don't fit certain places and i just realized that and luckily just about probably six months i would know a little longer but before i left the company uh, about a year before I left the company, I discovered psychedelics while just very stereotypical, you know, Danish style, riding my bike to work, um, listening to a podcast, uh, Tim Ferriss with Dr. Gabor Mate, who's a, who's a psychiatrist uh, based out of Vancouver. And they were talking about the relationship between trauma and addiction. Um, but what was really, really interesting is like they weren't using this traditionally new term of addiction, like, you know, crack or heroin or um math or whatever right just like all things that fill a void essentially whether that's dating or shopping or food or junk television and at the time at Nova Nordisk I was working on like new commercialization strategies for obesity products and that was like a new product line that was coming out and it just kind of clicked in my head and no one was talking about you know in a pharma company that's very you know biomedical you know, there's so much discussion about obesity, but no one ever mentioned the mental health aspects mm. of obesity. 
um, because it's a diabetes company, they were purely focusing on, you know, the cardiometabolic routes, the biochemical routes. And I just, it was just so obvious to me. So I just, um, they mentioned psychedelics briefly in that, in that talk. And so I started diving down that rabbit hole about psychedelics. And it was the first time I realized that they could be used as like practical, like philosophical and as well as mental health tools. Um, before when I was younger, I might've used, used cannabis in kind of a psychedelic way to help change my perspective and challenge my beliefs um, when I was doing, you know, these kind of philosophical thought experiments. Um, but I never thought much about psychedelics. I just thought, okay, they make you see cool stuff. Like I never really thought more than that. But after that podcast, I really realized, okay, this could be like one of the coolest things I've ever come across. So I, I really yeah. started diving down that rabbit hole. I started doing a lot of research on the relationship between obesity and trauma and mental health. Um, when I saw field trip, um, the last company I worked at pop up in Toronto in 2019, I just reached out to them, told them what I was up to, what I've been doing for the past year, what I was passionate about. Um, then yeah, I joined them as I think one of their first employees. And that's when I started learning a lot about like the startup life and learning more about the business application of psychedelics and mm. um, kind of watched because I was relatively early on. Um, I kind of watched the field grow and saw, you know, what was done well, what was done wrong, some of the hypocrisy in the field, um, you know, from various stakeholders, um, challenging myself and, you know, what my intentions are. And, you know, um, there's a lot of money in the space now, so it can get quite appetizing in a way, but yeah, that's, really that like I guess professional journey and then mm. pers personally I had been always in my life um, very let's say rationally oriented um, mm. since I was young I'm quite adept at like mathematics and, and sciences and even when I started approaching philosophy it was um, through an incredibly logical lens um, and then I remember my first larger experience with with mushrooms um, I had been meditating for like probably like six months at that time like quite regularly um, but then my first larger experience with mushrooms I was like oh like this is what meditation is like this is what mindfulness feels like, right. like this is what meditation is supposed to feel when like when was that that you that you did that like, and what, for, for what reason I think it was summer late summer 2018 and yeah, just, um, you know, I had to experience it for myself, you know, all the things that I, I was reading after I became an absolute expert in the neuroscience. Um, I could like see, oh, this is what's happening to my default mode network right now. And these neurons. <laughs> and was this in, this was in Canada, right? When it was in Denmark. It was in Denmark. Okay. And what are the laws around like in the UK and Denmark in Canada at the moment? Is it sort of slow, really slowly changing? Yeah, I'm not too sure. Europe's always a little bit slower. I mean, Canada and the US, it's it's still scheduled, um, you know, just like cannabis had been for a long time. I mean, cannabis is still federally scheduled in the US, right? Uh, a lot of people forget that. There are like multi-billion dollar cannabis companies in the stock exchanges in the US, but it's still just as illegal as it ever was at a federal level. Um, in Canada, obviously, cannabis is federally legal now, but I think cannabis paved the road for psychedelics and particularly around natural substances. So yeah, they're still illegal and I'm not giving anybody any inspiration or advice on, on using them and, um, you know, be smart about it. For me, I took quite a measured approach. I just 
my personality. But one of the biggest insights I had, which moved me from, you know, perpetually thinking place into a more feeling place and understanding the importance of that balance was I realized in that first larger dose experience that I had been treating my body as some like stupid meat machine that I have to lug around, right? Like, like my brain was like the valuable part of me and the rest of me was kind of just like annoying and I, I had dismissed it previously. Um, but it really opened my eyes in terms of like the value of like feeling and like direct experience and how that's potentially really the closest we can ever come to like knowing reality or like knowing ourselves is through like feeling and direct experience. Whereas thinking is always an interpretation that you make of reality or of yourself. Um, and I know in the past, I, you know, probably like many competitive, uh, you know, um, achievement oriented people, you tend to think of feelings as something that will like hold you back from achieving what you want to achieve. And so I would try to use my rational mind to like trump my feelings because I thought that would make me a better person or a more successful person. And I had done a lot of work before then, um, which I think definitely attributed to that realization um, during my, my mushroom experience. But um, that experience itself really showed me something that um, I don't know how long it would have taken to, to figure out otherwise. There, there was loads of things that I wanted to ask you basically there with, yeah. with what you were talking about with your journey. Yeah, like, please pick one. Mm. I mean, we can sort of go on in the last part to, to psychedelics and, you know, how they can change people and what they can be used for and all that kind of thing. I, I wanted to quickly ask you about like how, like in your experience in pharmaceutical companies, like big pharma mm. companies, mm. like how they operate and obviously the, the profit motive is is probably what one of the big motives, right? For for a lot of these mm. companies. And I guess when you put that on a on an axis against how healthy can we make the population, which is, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately what their missions should be, there can often be a massive clash between, you know, those two <laughs> motives, because yeah. what is going to make the most money isn't necessarily what's gonna you know, make people fully healthy and not need then medication. So it's a huge topic, this, but I just wanted to like very briefly get your inside track on how big pharmaceutical companies do deal with that issue. And in your experience, like, are they looking at it from a preventative, like, let's keep the population as healthy as possible? Because this is quite a passionate topic of mine. And I I don't feel like us as as a culture do do that enough it's more like preventative band-aids short-term measures rather than like taking a long-term like well-being mental approach yeah i mean yeah i definitely don't have the definitive answers but i do have right the experience in the background and i've thought about it a lot um so I, i you know i can say some things that are i guess potentially useful or you know thought provoking so um i guess at the end of the day they're like a company like any other, um, in a way, right? Um, if we apply healthcare and well-being in this, let's say, capitalistic 
kind of context, um, which doesn't make it inherently bad, you know. Um, yeah. I'm somebody who likes to see various sides and, and try to understand that there's good and bad in various sides and that balance is very important. One of the most enlightening things I've heard in recent years that I carry with me is actually, it was a talk by Jordan Peterson about like the creative population, the creative part of the population versus the more, let's say, efficient and productive part. So, I mean, and it makes a lot of sense that a very small fraction of the population, I don't remember the exact number, but probably like less than 5%, um, the adult population is properly creative. Um, and the rest of the population is more like efficient and you know follows instructions and, and does what's been done. Um, and it makes total sense um, because basically creative people fail like upwards of 90 plus 95 plus percent of the time. Right. And then the people who do things more efficiently, they succeed 90 plus percent. It's like inverse. Right. Yeah. Um, so that keeps things going. And if everybody in the world yeah. was creative, then the world would not exist anymore because it would have blown up already. And of course, people can switch between those two states as well yeah to a degree and it's it's like a, it's a spectrum right yeah. um i mean you know as a scientist uh, scientifically inclined person there uh, probably are some quite heavy like nature and nurture factors you know genetics and how you've been brought up that are maybe difficult to change once you're an adult but can be done sure. and if all the population was super efficient mm. then we would have also died out right there has to be like a nice ratio the best uh, my favorite analogy for this is there's some type of like, I don't know, nematode, like a worm that lives in the water. I know you study biology and it switches based on the environment from asexual to sexual reproduction. Um, and you can think of asexual reproduction, which is basically cloning. So every yeah. single lineage has the same genes. So asexual reproduction is like the efficient people and sexual reproduction is like creativity because you're adding randomness and, and chance by doing, doing sexual reproduction and, and mixing the gene pool more. And so when the environment is favorable for these worms, they'll just you know be super efficient just in doing asexual reproduction, just get their numbers up, just, just increase, increase, increase. It's a super efficient process as well because they just clone themselves. But then when the environment's not favorable, they'll switch into a sexual reproduction mode because they need to create, they need creativity, essentially. They need randomness, they need chance. And I think that's a fantastic analogy of like the relationship between creativity and efficiency. Mm. And just to, to bring it back to what we were talking about, yeah. I think, you know, there's just in big corporations, there's a lot of people just working very efficiently yeah. to have the machine keep running. Yeah. And it's only environmental changes yeah. that will force innovation, that will force creativity. Mm. But there tends to be a huge resistance. And it's like, sometimes it's almost like until it's too late. You want to get creative before it's too late. Yeah, yeah. Right? And either that, can, it's really hard for that to happen internally because this big machine has created this like self-perpetuating cycle of efficiency. So sometimes it takes these like disruptors, like, you know, I, I, I left or, you know, I jumped ship, but... You know, I did disrupt a lot of stuff and like, you know, ruffled a lot of feathers, uh, actually made mental health kind of like known and a priority. But it was at the risk of like, you know, me being fired sometimes um, because people just didn't like what I was saying. So that can happen internally, which is much harder. But, you know, that can happen um, ideally externally as well. I'm not sure if that's through like 
you know, socioeconomic changes, political changes, legal changes, just the state of the world. Oftentimes with companies, it's just the state of the market, right? Yeah. If there's like a dire threat to their mm. position, like, like a classic blockbuster Netflix type of thing, right? Have we kind of maybe lost track of the cycle of time that we're going through? And actually, there's a longer cycle of time here than we can sort of see and experience with our own eyes. So it's like almost the extent that we are like our generation and the, the generation above us and the generation above them, basically people who are alive have known the world in no different way in like a broad perspective. And you hear a lot of people saying like recently with COVID how you know, th this has like changed normal for us, but, but actually, you know, things are changing constantly and, and maybe like the way that we've been doing things for the last hundred years isn't optimal. And now it needs to go through like a massive cycle of change, which is what we're kind of seeing potentially now. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons I find psychedelics so interesting is because we're going through like exponentially increasing change, right? I forget the exact term, but wait, but why is really interesting blog. And he talks about this term where it's how far would you have to go into the future before you like couldn't recognize it. It's either, it's either you couldn't recognize it or you couldn't, you couldn't handle it. Right. Like maybe going from like 1500 to like 1700, you'd be like, okay, this, these few things are different, but like, okay, I got this. I'll learn this. Right. But going as like, let's say you're a 20 year old in like, you know, 1940 and you get teleported to like year 2000, you're going to be like, pretty screwed right especially if you're an adult and it's like harder to to adapt so i mean i know we talk a lot about like things like unreal engine and like virtual worlds and like Neuralink and like i love westworld right like that's no secret everybody knows i love westworld and um yeah like these these changes are so drastic and it, it really intrigues me like how are we going to cope with these things. And I imagine mm. potentially a lot of the mental health issues perhaps relate to being unable to keep up with change. And, you know, from firsthand experience and also, you know, just reading the literature, um, psychedelics could be one of those things that if used, you know, in a container, like in an appropriate set and setting with right intentions could help us, you know, both in like a biochemical and like a philosophical, psychological, spiritual senses, they could actually help us adapt to these changes um, because we're going to need to, as we, we know, with you know automation of work and the way the workforce is changing and just life in general is changing, people need to like reinvent themselves mm. more regularly, right? And that's not an easy thing to do. People never mm. used to have to do that, right? People would be yeah, lifers. Cool. People would be lifers in a company, right? Um, yeah. And so that's, I believe, we need tools for that. Mm -hmm. um, and I also believe, you know, because of how fast we're accelerating, and this kind of goes back to my, to what we were talking about at the very beginning of these tracks, um, these tracks that we're on. And because of how fast technology is accelerating and you know, funding is going to blockchain and AI and whatever, right? New, better marketing tools to capture people's attention and take their money, yep. right? Yeah. I really think it's very, very, very important to also have a movement that looks at the value of stepping back for a second and asking like why are we doing all these things mm. and is this what we want to be doing rather than just continuing to do it mm. because that's the way it 
has been done progress for the sake of progress yeah exactly and that that you've already kind of led me on to where i wanted to go in terms of psychedelics and your personal experiences of them and then obviously wanting to then sort of share that with more people um, for the effect but <clears throat> i just want you to yeah just just quickly kind of outline you know what exactly are they like for people who don't have really a clue like what is the category of psychedelics um what is the basic kind of neurological um yeah. changes they can do are they, are they safe like are they safe for everyone are they for certain people like you know this will lead you on nicely to your app that you are creating called houston yeah, which sure. is designed to be you know an introductory like guide for people who want to learn a bit more about them as and when they are legal so just give us that kind of elevator pitch if you like of yeah, for psychedelics sure. and, and how someone who's totally new can navigate what they can do for sure yeah the word navigation is great because that's what houston mm. does for you know space travel right so exactly first of all like the name really stuck with me because i feel like oftentimes people can just like my soccer analogy right they can take things too seriously mm. uh, so on alan watts quote the other day it's like um most people's problems stem from the fact that they take seriously what the gods made for fun or something like that right and that can definitely happen in the psychedelic space where people you know they confuse the finger with the thing it's pointing at and, and they take it far too seriously and become a little bit in my opinion elitist about it so i wanted to bring a little bit of like the playfulness and and the fun back i, li I like both, I both to make it relatable and and also just mm. to remind people to not take it too seriously yeah, I love I love how you said that and done that. And this is just another area where I feel like we're so aligned in that mm. yeah, I tried to apply the exact same thing for unboxing. I saw an important problem as something that people were taking too seriously or not willing to talk about in a lighthearted way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, involving things like illustrations, cartoons and, yeah, you know, like a sport, boxing and sports analogy. Like yeah. Those kinds of things are absolutely invaluable when you're trying mm -hmm. to make a new field of um, a new field of, of understanding technology yeah, or whatever community. it is. Yeah. yeah accessible absolutely. and interesting. So yeah, I love, I love the way that you framed it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's why I love film and that's why I love comedy. And mm. there's a um, book I have up here, like uh, Wittgenstein was like one of the greatest, most intelligent philosophers. I think of the last couple hundred years, he says, you know what? An entire philo uh, a philosophical work could be written entirely consisting of jokes right like i, I just love yeah. the way that like lightness and design and humor um, and poetry can be used to like plant those seeds mm. um so that's kind of why i'm really leaning into a into a design forward approach with with strong you know relatable copy and, and really wanting to to have like to balance the lightness with the seriousness yeah. so yeah basically the the idea behind houston is people who come to psychedelics and start using psychedelics they've, they've made a statement that they're interested in transformation right it's a bit like taking the hero's journey um by mm. joseph campbell you know you've, you've seen it in star wars with you know when the student is ready the master appears right so yeah we see it in star wars with you know uh luke skywalker and obi-wan kenobi han solo is also more the practical application of of the master uh, you have Lord of the Rings with, uh, you know, the Hobbits and Gandalf. And so people who are really ready for that transformational journey and haven't made that statement, we would like to provide them with the tools in the community to help 
with that journey and, and create that sense of being in it together um, with other people. It's not something that's taken alone. Um, it's something that if you have the right tools, you know, you can stick to it. You mm. can do it. And so um, basically to, to go into to psychedelics more specifically, I mean, the term itself is important to understand. It's mm. uh, like uh, the root means like mind manifesting or like mind revealing. Okay. Okay. Um, which was which was coined by Aldous Huxley alongside a. So that's not a biological term. That's a that's a descriptive term. It's a qualitative term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. That's which is really interesting, right? That's that's yeah, why it's really completely. important to start with that because then it's you realize like oh, so it's not something that hits this receptor specifically, like it's yeah, not like in, so... insulin. Like insulin hits this receptor, right? Like it's not like that. Like just that in yeah. itself is huge. So yeah. it's like any substance that changes in any way the biochemistry of, of something to do with your mind mm -hmm. has been banned. So like that that is such a big category of, yeah. of but what's interesting is not even it's not even just biochemical, right? Like experiences. Exactly. Like anything experiential right? has been untapped, unexplored. So yeah. all we've been dealing with is, is non, you know, mind altering substances that I've just realized like how kind of, yeah, profound that change is like when we actually start exploring substances that can change our mental state. And of course, some yeah. of that's going to be not good, but there's also going to be a massive upside. It's also, in, it's also very contextual. It, right? Yeah. It's also very contextual. Like, you know, if it's opening your mind, like there's a, there's a very, um kind of popular infographic that was created by imperial college through like a mathematical model i believe it was looking at like fmri brain imaging on like if someone received placebo versus mm. if they perceive uh receive psilocybin which is from magic mushrooms yeah and you could see just like how many more brain connections were formed so you could say you know that is what all the sucks meant by the term psychedelic like mind manifesting like it literally like opens connections in the mind and it creates these variety of feelings that are actually used um, in surveys now in clinical research like for example visual reconstruction which would be you know typically like seeing things right on psychedelics and like patterns and you know seeing sounds and, and tasting colors whatever then there's a couple really interesting measures like ego dissolution, which you know, some people might have heard as is like ego death, like your sense of mm. losing your sense of self. Yeah. Sometimes it can be anxious for people, but sometimes it can be very peaceful for people. Sometimes it can be both and, you know, they, they flow in different ways. The one I really, really love is oceanic boundlessness. So it's this feeling of yeah, becoming boundless, like almost like you're dissolving into like an, the ocean of, of everything. And that was actually coined by a French writer who I can't remember his name in his correspondence with Sigmund Freud. Mm. So that was used a little bit before psychedelics were first studied. But essentially, if we're talking about a psychedelic as something that's mind manifesting or mind revealing, to get more simple, people mm. use the term classical psychedelics for typically things that have hit the serotonin 2a receptor which would be uh, they hit a lot of other receptors too but primarily this is responsible for the psychedelic experience and that's like psilocybin which comes from magic mushrooms lsd which obviously most people are familiar with dmt which is 
you know, becoming more popular and in the forefront. There's one called 5-MeO-DMT that, that comes from the Sonoran Desert Toad. Just to be clear, there's so there's these radically different substances that you find in completely different places, but they all work on the same receptor. Yeah, and there's different, like, kind of reliably different qualitative aspects of the experiences. But in a lot of the measures that I mentioned, like ego dissolution, oceanic boundlessness, things like that, they overlap quite okay. significantly there. Um, and cannabis, is that in the same category? Doesn't activate the same receptors but that's to the point of like set and setting as well like i've had like ego dissolution experiences with cannabis particularly if you combine it with like a a thought experiment or like music or meditation so it's they call those classical psychedelics because they're the ones that really like reliably produce those experiences um i'll take take this with a grain of salt i might be misconstruing some things and by the way this is not um medical advice or nice to use any of these things but um disclaimer that yeah disclaimer that but basically those substances like lsd psilocybin dmt those are like traditional psychedelics but then Mm. uh, classical psychedelics yeah and there are other ones that people would be familiar with um, some more than others but like salvia is one example and that's like an opiate receptor but that also makes people trip in like a psychedelic way it's, it's different feeling than the other psychedelics but you know that could be called a psychedelic mescaline which comes from you know cactus um i'm not actually exactly sure yeah, i think it hits the serotonin 2a receptors and it might be considered a classical psychedelic but that's has a little bit of a different quality and that's been used um, by native americans for for a very long time historically apparently it has a lot to do with physical ailments like that's how they would treat uh, and then ayahuasca um, which contains um, dmt is the main active ingredient but then other substances like harmine or and harmaline that's been used obviously in the amazon for for many many generations and to be a little bit tangential what's really interesting is how they historically have used them to treat physical ailments but potentially you know, the way we look at this dichotomy of mind and body is kind of arbitrary. And one could say that like physical ailments are quite connected to mm. mental ailments. And there's an interesting book that I would encourage people to check out called The Body Keeps the Score about this. And there's a great analogy in terms of when people ask, ask, how are you, right? In typically Western cultures, like Anglo-Saxon cultures, people ask, how are you? Right. But in a lot of cultures that are more like, you know, family oriented, big meal oriented, like the Mediterranean, what I've heard, you know, South America, people ask, uh, even my Jamaican side, people tend to ask, oh, have you eaten? You know, that's their way of asking, how are you? Because they connect like, like the physiological well-being so much more with the mental well-being and not as like two separate entities. Mm. that exist independently and that's something i've been learning a lot over the last yeah. few years especially with the experience i told you um that i had with with mushrooms this yeah this is uh this is seriously fascinating and you're you're a very difficult person to to podcast with because you there's so many different tangents and angles that i want to go down and explore yeah. and it's kind of a shame almost to 
to want to limit it yeah. to an hour. Maybe we could do another one sometime. But 100%, uh, and I'm yeah. sure we will. But to just round off the mm-hmm. main podcast, and I do want to go into like the bonus round and discuss some other things with you there that maybe will lead on from what we've been discussing. But just to sort of round off the, the main part of the podcast, leading on from that, is just so someone who might be you know thinking okay like myself i've never taken any psychedelic and not sure if i will but i'd be you know potentially open to doing it in the right setting and if i you know logical the logical mind is is yeah. uh, engaged enough yeah i might do it so like how will houston sort of help someone like me like would you say try it all and we'll sort of figure out what's best for you or like uh, it's almost like there's this menu do they have different um benefits for like do i take a bit of psilocybin for concentration or mm. something else for or how does it actually work like because it can be quite confusing for someone who's new to that space do, do they yeah. just is there a an entry level one that should be start off is it is it not for everyone because you also hear like these kind of things being taken in the wrong settings and it's yeah. definitely not like a silver bullet that anyone should be taking what would your advice be to someone who is like me and potentially yeah. looking to put their foot in the water? Yeah. I mean, so to, yeah, just set the context for everybody. Houston is starting and dealing with microdosing. Yeah. And microdosing is basically the use of subperceptual doses of psychedelic substances. So you're not tripping, so to speak, but people tend to report that they might experience increased focus or increased presence or Mm -hmm. increased empathy or elevated mood. And from the research, people tend to do that, you know, when they feel like it or on a routine schedule that is anywhere from like two to five times per week, um, because there tends to be a, you don't want to build tolerance. So you have to give your receptors some breaks. So you'll, you you won't do it every single day. Um, So we've decided to start with that because you see it as, um, a way people are integrating psychedelics into their more regular lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and for somebody doing a bigger trip, I would never really advise that they do it with an app, right? I would recommend with like a friend or a loved one, or, you know, there's various ke- uh, clinics using ketamine actually, which I know has a funny history in the UK. So it's a little bit different, but in North America, there are a lot of clinics popping up using ketamine in a psychedelic way basically because other psychedelics aren't approved slash legal yet. So that's why we decided to start with, with microdosing. And essentially because it's not legal, you know, we're not recommending that people do it at all. We really just know that people are going to do it. People have been doing it. People are turning to it more and more, um, you know, as an alternative to a lot but just, you know, a way to improve their life, but also many people as an alternative to pharmaceutical substances for things like anxiety, depression, ADHD, mm. that really have, like, honestly, you know, quite poor evidence. Um, and, you know, no one really denies that. Rather limited benefits have been over, for most people, rather limited benefits. For some people, it's life-saving. But it's, it's been very much over-prescribed. And a lot of people are suffering because of the overprescription of things like antidepressants. So people are looking for alternatives. So basically we'll never recommend, you know, the use of an illegal substance, but essentially it's this public health principle called harm reduction, where it's, if you're going to use these substances, then you should, you know, track what you're using, uh, how it's affecting you. 
you should lean on scientific research and thought leaders and the community to understand how it's influencing other people. Mm-hmm. And then that can, you know, help give someone the autonomy to make their own decisions based mm-hmm. off what they've learned and then give them those tools to help mm-hmm. them inform how those decisions are affecting them and yeah. whether they want to change them or not. Um, and then also creating this sense of connection because really, like I said, you know, psychedelics are the finger pointing at something else. Mm-hmm. So in reality, it's not about psychedelics. It's about mm-hmm. the reasons why people are coming to them, whether it's self-exploration, healing things like depression or anxiety, yep. improving their relationships, finding a renewed sense of purpose, a deeper sense of meaning in their work or their life, enhancing concentration, improving creativity, um, things like that. So we'll be creating a nexus and a platform to provide those tools and also bring together a lot of that scientific information and a lot of that, you know, crowdsourced anecdotal information, which will help provide information on those exact questions. Like what are some reports on different experiences of microdosing psilocybin mushrooms versus LSD, right? From the top of my Mm -hmm. head, mushrooms can be a little bit more of an embodying experience and create a little bit more empathy where LSD people tend to report a little bit more of like a cerebral focused experience like kind of like a a cleaner less jittery ritalin so to speak so you're actually at the frontier of figuring out what these things can be prescribed for still you know yeah and that's yeah i guess maybe it's self-gratifying but one of my favorite things to do is like to go against the grain and uh, challenge things so a lot of these first wave psychedelic companies have really focused on um, you know traditional models like clinics and, and drug development i'm very much of the impression that none of these things should be illegal. Like, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, for example, mushrooms that kill you aren't illegal, right? right? Which is, which is ridiculous, right? So yeah, if, it was yeah. about, if it was about health, right? Wouldn't those things be illegal? So everybody knows it's not, it's not, it's not a controversial or a conspiracy. Everybody knows that these things weren't made illegal because of public health. Um, they were made illegal because it was a way to, well, various drugs were made illegal because it was a way to, you know, crack down on anti-war protesters and, um, you know, perpetuate, you know, Jim Crow laws and racist laws, uh, particularly against the black community in the U.S. Yeah. So, uh, you know, full stop, they were never illegal due to like safety reasons and medical reasons. A lot of people, including in the psychedelic space, particularly, you know, um, those who come in more as investors and 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 corporate people, they will say, oh, we're not ready for decriminalization and legalization and these should be used responsibly and we need to prove medical benefit first. And I'm like, okay, with that rationale, alcohol and tobacco should be illegal, right? So I'm of the impression that, you know, from a sheer human liberty perspective, no one should be prevented or incarcerated or charged for having a mushroom you know, that literally grows on shit, right? Yeah. Like that's completely ridiculous. And as a society and business people and, and thought leaders or whatever we are, creatives, everything, our perspective should be fighting for human liberty and, and, and freedom. And then if we want to see the world a certain way, then we create those tools mm. to help people make responsible decisions with their freedom. Yeah. 
I'm glad I got that in there because I wanted to I wanted to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. I love you almost transitioned us nicely onto a whole new podcast topic there, which which I genuinely yeah. would like to discuss yeah, with you about like how absolutely. why they became illegalized and that's just super interesting in itself. But I think you rounded it off really nicely there in that these things are at the end of the day, they're tools. They're not, they're not silver bullets. They're not, you know, mm-hmm. they are tools and you're providing an, an instruction booklet, if you like to, you know, help people navigate them rather than them just being these unknown sort of substances. So mm-hmm. thanks for sharing all of that. And um, it's uh, yeah, super interesting. And um, as I say, there's, there's so many different like angles we could have gone down that I didn't because in just in the interest of time, but yeah, look forward to having those conversations more and more. Brandon, I want to jump into what I call the final round and ask you a couple of questions, which I do with all my guests. And, um, just ask you a set of a series of, of questions just to kind of round off the bout. So the first question that I always start with is, and take this, you know, wherever you want to, what is something that you believe that most people don't or something that you don't believe that most people do? Unfortunately, this part of the podcast is for mailing list subscribers only. So this is a quick reminder to sign up to the unboxing mailing list for free via the link in the podcast description so that you will receive every new episode direct to your inbox, free live workshops with podcast guests and access to Unboxing Uncensored, this secret bonus round from the podcast. Anyway, let's get on with the final part of the show. Awesome. Well, just sort of like it now sort of dives back in just to the to the main podcast to just round off the um, show. So there's just two quick questions. Um, the first one is, what's the one thing that you would like to be different about the world in five years' time? And then we'll go mm-hmm. on to the uh, the the outro song. The one thing I would like to be different is that we are more collectively on a path towards increased empathy. And like emotional understanding between ourselves and others. And I, I think, and I hope like psychedelics will play a role in that. Awesome. And finally, your outro song of choice. It, it relates to what we were talking about. I suppose, I'm sure you spent a long time figuring this one out. I had a different answer, but then <laughs> in our like philosophical conversation, uh, another song came up that I've really loved lately. It came on serendipitously a couple of weeks ago when I needed it. Um, it's by Travis Scott and it's called uh, Stop Trying to Be God. It's great. It's very nice. Love it. Look forward to listening to that. It's amazing how many, how often the lyrics from the songs like really are in alignment with what we've discussed in the podcast. Yeah. So I'm sure this one will be no different, but okay, Brandon, thanks very much for your time in the ring. It's been a, a long and juicy one. And yeah. Uh, yeah, hopefully, definitely speak soon again. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, Brandon. <laughs>